Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. Uh, it's been some time since we've had an episode with some of the holidays and finals kicking in gear. We took a little bit of a break. We also had the uh, passing of our namesake, former President Bush, um, which was taking up a lot of our uh, time and capacities in-house. So uh, we were going to get with you a little bit earlier, but we've taken a little bit of time, um, which gives me the opportunity to tell you a little bit about some of the things we're planning for the spring. Um, this is, I believe, we were just discussing, I think this is episode or interview four. Um, and our plan in the plus, spring... Plus one hot take. Plus one hot take that yeah. we did. Um, all available for you on the podcast stream. Um, so a couple things. One, we are now available not just on SoundCloud, but also the iTunes podcast. So if you have an Apple product, you have an iPhone, there's a little podcast app on that where your iPad can search for Bush School and Court and subscribe there as well as SoundCloud. So got that going. Uh, we have a Facebook fan page that you can join. It's at Bush School Uncorked, where we will be posting these episodes um, and sharing more information as we uh, plan on doing some live events in the spring that we'll let you know about. All of that information can be found there. So in the spring, we're going to keep doing this uh, format where we have uh, wonderful guests that are Bush School faculty members or friends of the Bush School talking about the work that they do. So we'll continue doing that. But we're also going to be reaching out to former Bush School students who were out and left the high tower of academia out in the real world, as my students remind me, and uh, share with you some of the interesting work they do because we have a number of Bush School students who are out in the world doing some really cool public service things. So we'll be sharing some of their stories with you in the spring. Also, we intend to let through our Facebook uh, fan page let you know when we're recording and so in the spring, we'll also encourage folks that are around the Bryan area or College Station area to come out to downtown Uncourt as we're recording these. And we're thinking about taking some live questions from the audience if people do show. And we think that could be um, a lot of fun. So keep you updated on those. We'll be back in uh, after this episode, probably mid-January, about January 15th. And we're hoping to host Professor John Schusler for that episode. Okay. Whew, that was a lot. All right, so I'm again Justin Bullock, and today we have our, a full panel that we'll get to. Uh, Professors Ann Bowman and Gregory Galls are with us as usual. Um, but we'll begin with a conversation with two guests that we've had for the first time, um, them being Professor William Brown and Professor Kenneth Taylor, who I'm going to lovingly refer to as Will and Kenny. I hope that's okay, gentlemen. Um, so we are. <laughs> let me begin by letting them introduce themselves, their role at the Bush School, and they both play important roles in a new center uh, for nonprofits and philanthropy that I want to spend some time talking about. So maybe Will, if you don't mind, uh, sure. you're the director. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> uh, yes, tell us a little bit about how you see yourself as a faculty member of the Bush School and some of the things that you do. Sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So I'm uh, serve as the director of the Center for Nonprofits and Philanthropy. I've uh, been at the Bush School for 12 years, which is uh, always a little bit hard to believe, and been working in the nonprofit management area. Sort of why I came to the school was to continue to think about what we do in this space and what we do. Obviously, a lot of our work is, has been in education. Um, well, a little over a year ago, the center was officially recognized, and so um, we're beginning to think about it, how we can expand and do uh, in, increase the, the kinds of activities and the things that we do in that area. And what is your, uh, just uh, for listeners, what's your, what does your research background look like? I've been doing a lot with education with the centers, and I want to get into that, but just for some reference for someone. So my, my area of research, um, fair amount of the stuff I think about is how boards of directors work. Mm -hmm. uh, volunteer leaders on boards of nonprofit organizations and the roles and, and activities that they carry out 
um, and the difference they make in the organization. Um, I've been doing some stuff in reference to strategy, how nonprofit organizations think about strategy that fits into the governance uh, material as well, and how board members themselves help the organization in their strategic decision making. And that's sort of the two main areas I've been doing my research. Excellent. Thanks, Will. Um, and Kenny, maybe you could tell us a little about you are the newest member of the faculty of the group around the table. <laughs> yes, so yes. thanks for participating and welcome again. Um, tell uh, the listeners a little bit about how you see yourself and, uh, and what you're doing currently with the Bush School. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Kenny Taylor, I came to the Bush School. This is my second year now and I work with Will and I am the outreach person and professional development uh, staff at the Center for Nonprofits and Philanthropy. And broadly in the Bush School, I'm an assistant professor of the practice. Uh, my background, I came to the school as a practitioner, so I was out in the world serving. Out in the real world where the students are. Real world where the students are. We saved him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brought you back to the ivory tower. Exactly, yeah. But I served uh, with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, particularly for 12 years. I left as the uh, CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters in Austin. And after that point, I wanted to transition into academia. And then I ended up doing my research and uh, leader behavior within nonprofit organizations and how that potentially links to job satisfaction within nonprofit organizations. So different characteristics of the leaders and the, their leadership strategy and what impacts that has for the performance of the organization. Yeah, it's just more, uh, I guess, uh, more specifically looking at the behaviors of, uh, say, self-awareness, transparency, how leaders engage others in decision-making before uh, making decisions that affect others, that types of leadership within nonprofits, and does that somehow equate to uh, job satisfaction or higher levels of satisfaction within organizations, exclusively within nonprofits? And how have you found uh, what... What ends up taking up the bulk of your time in this uh, in this current position? So since joining the uh, Bush School and my role with the center, uh, most of my time is actually engaging with uh, local nonprofit executives more than anything. Uh, we just recently, not recently, but since I joined, we started an initiative, what's known as the Brazos Valley Initiative. Mm -hmm. And what that's allowed me to do is to really get to know and partner with local nonprofit executives on some of the things that they're dealing with as far as capacity issues. And so far, what we've been able to accomplish is to provide trainings for our executive directors and CEOs for local nonprofits. And some of that has transitioned into doing some trainings for board members as well. So the organizations primarily that we work with are affiliated or funded by United Way, the city of College Station, and the city of uh, Bryan. Uh, through their uh, community development backgrounds. So a lot of the focus really has been helping out local nonprofit leaders in the Bryan College Station area. I mean, that's one of the main pushes from what you've been doing. So far, I mean, we, we're here to serve, of course, the state of Texas, and we have, of course, excellent faculty that do work all over the world. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we intentionally made a decision to start local and then reach out to some of the underserved areas in Texas. So whether it be East Texas or the South Texas region, uh, but we knew immediately we had to do something local. 
So you'd get one cheer from Ann uh, being local and one boo from Greg for not being international. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Think global, act local. There we go. That's the idea, right? That's the idea. And we do have an international piece to what we're doing, right? So Mary Hildebrand. Um, has been helping us think about how do we take some of the same work, our research, our education, our outreach initiatives, and, and help connect students to those and help connect that to some work internationally. That continues to be an area and she continues to work on the concentration in the school which is shared between the two, to pro, the two programs that allow people to be able to study uh, NGOs, nonprofit organizations in their role in, in, a, in a broader sort of international context. So we do, we do, we try to do a little Just, bit of that as well. You, you redeemed yourself with Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, we, we've kind of talked around it a little bit, but maybe uh, jumping back over to Will, maybe as the director, tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the types of things? It sounds like there's, uh, there's some research aspects, there's some yep. real community engagement aspects, and there's some education and training right. uh, of local leaders. So tell me kind of how you view this center and what you're doing now and some of the things you hope to con continue to do in the future. So we do. We think about our work across those three areas, education, teaching, and research. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and our role or the mission of the center is to, to support a vibrant and, 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 and a nonprofit and philanthropic sector. We talk about it both in Texas and, and abroad or around or beyond that or something along that word. So trying to support nonprofit organizations and we do that in each one of those areas. Improve understanding through our research. How do we function? What does it mean to operate in these organizations? How do they what's the you know what kind of leaders what can what does it mean to be a leader of a nonprofit organization what are the roles and functions what are the things you need to be able to do same thing with around volunteers our outreach work continues to try and help us understand how do we apply some of this stuff so mm -hmm. can we actually help organizations to be more effective and to, to achieve the objectives and missions that they're trying to be able to achieve and then helping students be prepared um, to be able to be effective leaders in these organizations as well, and so I think the edu I mean the education piece continues to be a a, a, a a pretty prevalent theme. It makes sense. We're a school, right? Mm -hmm. We're educate people. It's what we do, um, and we try and uh, inspire or elevate the conversation so that it's not just about you know sort of the most the most pressing or the hottest topic, but really about some core principles that we know make a difference in these organizations and really try and stimulate a conversation for people. And people are hungry for that kind of information. A, we all, many of us, are engaged in nonprofits in some capacity, either as volunteers, our family members are engaged in, in nonprofit organizations. They touch our lives in so many different ways. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, they're oftentimes small, oftentimes under-resourced, a lot of times volunteer-led, um, so many times have high ambitions and high expectations, doing a lot of interesting work, but a lot of room for improvement in the way that they function and operate. Um, and so they can be frustrating sometimes to be able to engage with. And so to be a part of how we can support some of those organizations to play a really critical role in our society around building communities, about building relationships, um, some of the core features of what we think about a, 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 of a civil society come from some of the work that these organizations do. What are, um, you know, you mentioned there's a number of kind of just basic core principles that, that you found useful to uh, share with nonprofits and share with their leaders. 
what are maybe just a couple of those that make that are really helpful to organizations on the ground? So we focus a couple. I mean, obviously in leadership. So Kenny's work, he can talk a little bit of some of the things that he's found. I'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff that I found in reference to boards. Yeah, great. Right. So boards get in there. Boards play a lot of different roles for these organizations. Um, but but the research is pretty clear um, as best we can tell. Right. Um, the more that the boards can 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 transition from helping and operating and running the most recent fundraiser, right, to really be helping an organization think about themselves strategically. What, what's the role of this organization? What's our, what's our market? How do we think about who we are? Um, what are the capacities? What are the resource needs that we have? Um, how do we understand performance in our organization? How do we know that we're achieving our objectives? The more that the board is engaged in those kinds of conversations, it makes a difference for the organization. Obviously, the organ those conversations entail impact, how do we achieve the objectives, but also sustainability. Mm -hmm. And thinking strategically about the, how the organization achieves both its sustainability and its impact. So boards doing more of that makes, seems to make a difference. Executives need it, so the literature is pretty clear. But to talk about how that plays itself out and to continue to understand in what way and in what context how do the how do boards provide that kind of strategic leadership? So that's one example of an area where we talk to our boards about, yeah, what you're doing in in, in in all of these other areas is important, but you probably are not making enough time to talk about the strategies and the role of the organization more broadly. And some of that, and I I don't know if this is a nonprofit taboo in the way that it is a public administration taboo, but is that pretty similar to how we think about private company boards? That I mean, it sounds my understanding loosely yeah. of private boards is they need to be doing those same type of big level picture things not not doing the active management and you see more clear separation and is that a fair kind of we use we use I use lip so when I think about a, a governing of a nonprofit organization I look at literature from both from both fields all fields really right so anybody who's studying how leaders function in a group setting provide some insight and some understanding about what it means. So yes, the literature and the corporate governance is similar about how it's important for those organ those boards to be having conversations about strategy and where the organization is going and what it look what performance looks like and what that means. Excellent. Kenny, maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about what you found or both in your own research and in some of these seminars and education that you, that, uh, you work with. What are some of the common uh, traits associated with successful leadership, or what are some things that, as you know, if someone's listening to this and they are a nonprofit leader, what are some of just taste of things that would be useful for them to know? I think internally, uh, so Will talked about the board piece uh, internally from the executive director or the CEO down to that person's staff. One of the things I think over time that's made a difference that's also referenced uh, pretty consistently in the literature is. Uh, one of the points that I've mentioned, and that is engaging your frontline staff and decision-making. So usually what happens, and I saw this, of course, out there when I was running my own nonprofit, is that uh, a top-down approach doesn't seem to work that well. And what's more accepted is, especially when you have three-quarters of your staff that are more frontline, service delivery-oriented, they want to be engaged in the decision-making processes. They specifically choose to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, they come to organizations to work with uh, volunteers, 
to work with families. And if they aren't engaged in those conversations internally, then uh, that's been seen as a negative. Mm -hmm. So we see uh, turnover associated with that, uh, lower job satisfaction associated with that. So some of the work that we do, we try to encourage internally that nonprofit executives are engaging their staff and those growth goals that they have or in some of the strategic planning process uh, so that they can at least take away that they're engaged in the mission, they're part of that mission advancement, and that at the end of the day they feel like they are part of making decisions within. Uh, when that doesn't happen, uh, nonprofits I think are notorious for turnover, uh, especially in lower level positions. And what that tends to fend off, uh, just something as simple as engaging others in decision making, uh, can fend off uh, those that have uh, dissatisfaction with the pay. Mm -hmm. That always comes up in the literature. And then also the other piece that's associated with pay is the opportunities for advancement. So as was referenced, many of our organizations are small. And so nonprofit employees, sometimes they don't have a route for professional growth, uh, but good leadership, engaging them in decision making, a leader that is uh, self-aware, transparent, uh, that they view as someone that has uh, good ethics and morals in relation to the work that they do, that all helps. Yeah, it's interesting, so some of my own work is in public management and motivations for those in the public sector and how that compares to those in the private sector. And so it's always interesting to me to think about top leadership and the tools that they have available to them across different types of organizations, right? So the in the the classic ones are extrinsic motivations and intrinsic motivations and mm -hmm. tools that you can use to kind of activate those. And so it's not surprising to me anyways that when you have limit, that's what we talk about in public management as well, when you have limited use of the extrinsic motives, the pay, the financial incentives, the benefits, what becomes really important to people are these intrinsic motives, this desire to serve the public, this desire to be a volunteer, or to be doing something that's part of a mission. And so I think it makes, it makes good sense to me that having some, being able to be part of that process and have some say over what's going on in the organization can help improve those intrinsic motives and keep people there when you don't have the well, I'll just give you a raise and be quiet as like a, as like a tool because that's not a tool you have, right? Right, right. No, it makes sense. It, it's uh, we know on the nonprofit side of things that employees don't go into that work for pay. Uh, there's other things that they want to do. They want to serve others. They want to do good work. Uh, it's meaningful to them. If they don't get an opportunity to live that out, then that's when you see uh, transitions take place. So, so I think um, almost to the point where we'll transition to the broader panel and see what uh, Ann and Greg have to say about these things. But one thing I'm interested to hear from both of you before we do that is um, why why nonprofits? So the people we have had on so far have been more government people and public policy, like evaluating. Lori Taylor was here, and we were talking about different ways to better fund education. Um, we were talking about trade policies with Raymond Robertson and concerns about democracy and decline with Jessica Gottlieb. And a lot of these are specifically government. A lot of us around the table um, uh, are, are government scholars. So what, we'll start with Will um, to bounce back over. 
Why, why are nonprofits important in something that we should be de dedicating resources and time and energy to, to figuring out? Why do you care so much about them? I mean, it started when I was working in a nonprofit organization. So I remember my training is in, as, a, as an organizational psychologist. So I think about how organizations work and operate. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about any organization. And I was working in a nonprofit and seeing what was going on there, wanting it to try and be successful and help. In that instance, I was working with you know disadvantaged kids, right? Mm -hmm. So emotionally dis uh, challenged kids and trying to be able to provide those services and thinking about the way that they get funded, thinking about the rules that they function and operate with. So the purposes that those organizations carry out are, are important to me. And so, um, the, and then the ability to sort of um, engage individuals in lots of ways. So you think about, so we're in downtown Bryan, you think about uh, CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, plays a really critical role in helping families um, and kids in particular sort of navigate uh, the family court system and how they're, who, they're, who is their advocate. And so they play a critical role of helping volunteers serve as intermediaries for that whole system. While we could say, you know, a professional social worker should be involved, and they are, there's also that role of that compassionate and caring individual and the role that they play in that. So to me, the, the things that they do um, are really important, and I saw a lot of need for helping those organizations think about the way that they do their work, mm -hmm. and that it wasn't just as simple as applying principles of business operating these organizations they're very complex in the way that they function we talk about this idea of engaging people and the mission and the purpose of the that takes time it's it can be exhausting and in some ways we would much rather be able to just invest or get pay people so that they do what needs to get done but we know that that's not even an option for most of these organizations and you add to that volunteers who are not getting paid so how do you get them to be invested and to perform the kinds of functions and roles that need to get done? So I find them fascinating organizations to consider. Yeah, the different types of tools and challenges certainly are, I would think, very different from the private sector on lots of dimensions. Right. Bring us home, Kenny. Same here. Just uh, I uh, kind of found my way into working for nonprofits based on uh, I grew up without my dad for a period of my life, and I just said I wanted to help kids like me or mm -hmm. that grew up partially like me and uh, I mentioned earlier that I you know worked for Big Brothers Big Sisters for 12 years when I found that organization it just kind of hit me from the standpoint of that was an organization that did the same thing for kids that I experienced through an uncle who took some interest in me mm -hmm. and then it just stuck from that point uh, then from there it just became one of those things as to how can nonprofits operate better from going from the point where I was a social worker to the opportunity to work uh, nationally for a nonprofit organization and then to running my own organization. It was just a curiosity of what does it take for these organizations to run better, which led right into my research. The thing that I started thinking about is, uh, you know, when you have dips in government spending, you know, historically nonprofit organizations have been there to fill in the gaps when people need services and so that's kind of stuck with me along the way and it's made for a pretty you know uh, fantastic career so far wonderful um well thanks for sharing um both some about yourselves and some of the work you do 
Uh, it was really interesting to uh, learn more about the center, uh, center for nonprofits and philanthropy that um, y'all have going on down the hallway from me. That's right. <laughs> uh, a little closer to Greg, a little about the same distance for him. Um, and uh, I think it's I think it's really important what you're doing. I think particularly in states that are resource constrained um, and that are in low tax. Um, areas where there are a lot of gaps in the services that need to be provided. Understanding how to do that as efficiently and effectively as possible with the given resources I think is super important. So I'm glad y'all are out there doing that. Take just a minute break and then we're going to shift to a panel conversation. Thank you gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back for part two, where we have a nice panel discussion, and I know that Anne is ready with a question, so jump I in, please. Have a question. Thank you, Justin. Um, Will and Kenny, uh, I'm particularly curious about the relationship of governments, local governments or state governments specifically, to nonprofit organizations. You know, the way I've always approached it is uh, nonprofits function as a supplement to government. In other words, as you mentioned, Kenny, earlier, uh, if there's a gap in services, then nonprofits oftentimes can step in and fill in that gap. But increasingly, I've been reading uh, some, some work that's looked at, it really raises a question about whether nonprofits, successful nonprofits especially, end up really being substitutes for government. Mm -hmm. And whether that's whether that creates a problem in some ways. These are these functions that governments simply are just asleep at the switch. These are things governments are not willing to, um, let's say, spend money on, or not willing to raise taxes to support. I mean, we'd like to think in a local community, for example, that governments exist to serve virtually all the people who live there, everyone in the community. There's some things they prioritize and emphasize, but. But how do, how do we get in this position that these gaps are, are occurring and in effect is this supplemental nature actually becoming almost a substitution? And what consequences do you see if that's the case? Let me take a stab at that and sure. get started yeah. on sort of thinking about some of this. It's an interesting question. Thank you, Anne. Um, yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, with your assessment that, that, that while we might have initially thought about the Rotary, or we thought about the Lions Club, or some of these organizations as, as sort of supporting, supplementing, and functioning in some spaces, government's just not going to function, right? So faith-based entities, churches, and those kinds of things, it's, government's not going to be there, and so those organizations fulfill that function and play in that space. Nonprofits are fascinating, right, because not only in the public space is there overlap or is there a potential role, but in the private space as well, but we, won't, we don't have to go there. I mean, I see, I see it playing itself out in, a, in, in, in two areas. I know a lot of times we talk about it in social services or in, in, so in the foster care system, right? So as the state of Texas is looking at how are we going to handle and take care of our kids, you know, they're looking to push a lot of that down to the community level. And what that really means is they're looking to nonprofit organizations to, to fulfill that function, to support those kids in, in, in the placements that they have, uh, in their families as they transition. Um, but we also see an interesting role of, of nonprofit organizations, also at the state level, a little bit less at the local level, and certainly in, in an international context, performing sort of regulatory or quasi-regulatory functions. I just was recently doing some work with 
an organization that regulates the internet, you know, and it's a nonprofit organization that functions internationally, supersedes in some sense any one governmental structure. It, it, it supplements, we have to be able to have IP addresses that communicate with France and with, and they've, they've, they've empowered that organization, they being the government, ultimately said, we're not the best, the U.S. government, we're not the best ones to perform that function. You, you as an entity, a collective entity, almost like an association, perform that better and in a way that can be collected. Now, is that a problem? Become, does it become potentially private, right? I mean, one of the key problems that we run into in the social services space is it's inconsistent, it's unreliable. So while the state of Texas says, we love these community-based organizations, they're local to our community, our families are a part of them, they know the communities better than us, West Texas is different than South Texas is different than East Texas, and so these local groups, well, when you show up there, turns out that there's two or three groups, maybe at the most, that are functioning in this space, turns out it's not very substantive in the kinds of systems that they have, maybe there's nobody there. We hear from funders all the time, people that are trying to achieve a particular objective around the elderly, around kids. There's no substantive, strong organization to be able to, to fulfill that. I mean, we can pick just about any topic. Recovery was the other one that we've sort of been looking at. So what's been going on along the border, and along the, along the sort of the, the, the coast, and how what happens in reference? There were, they need nonprofit organizations to play some of those community development roles and some of those functions. And in many places, there was nobody there to be able to do it. So, I mean, and part of me is like it is what it is, right? I mean, I don't. I mean, I, are we ever going to go back to a place where we feel that government's going to perform those functions in a way? Or were we ever? Probably not. Right? We relied on families, we relied on churches, we did all of that anyway, we just didn't think about it in a systematic way. And now we're saying, oh, yeah, we have some social service needs and capacities, and so, gee, somebody's got to do it. So yeah. I'm just going to ask to follow up just real quickly. So, so where's the accountability there? I mean, where is ultimately where's the accountability? Yeah, it's 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 incredibly elusive, okay. right? Because it has partly it has to do with funding, partly it has to do with relationships, partly it has to do with legitimacy. Can the organization maintain legitimacy? But I mean, typically a nonprofit executive is concerned about making sure that they can meet budget and that they can meet payroll and they can pay for the people that they've got and they can meet their accountabilities. So typically the first level of accountability of a social service organization, folks who have been serving the, the kids along the border, those, I mean, they're looking at what the state does in reference to the, how the state tells them what they need to be able to do, but they're looking also to try and be accountable to some of the other communities, but it's, it, it's tricky, it's a loser, for sure. So some of these organizations have their own funding, but some nonprofits act almost as arms of the state. I mean, the state, they go to the state for funding to do the job, and the state says, okay, we're, we're going to pay you in effect to implement state policies in all sorts of areas like child protective services maybe one that's in the newspaper in texas right. these days that's for sure what's the difference between the organizations that raise their own money and the organizations that that in essence are are contractors to the state that's an, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know if I don't know if we have an answer about what's the difference. I mean, I mean, there is some research that suggests government funding tends to lead to professionalization. Right? Is so that good or bad? 
That's a good question, yeah. right? I think in some instances it can be a good thing. It may, if you're dealing with at-risk populations or disadvantaged individuals or if you're a nursing home, in highly regulatory environments like nursing homes or childcare or some of these other places or working with kids, those organizations comply because of the regulatory context that they're, and that requires that they have professionals in place to be right. able to both communicate and perform some of those things, but right. also costs money. Um, but in some sense, it could potentially lose some of the other characteristics that we thought that we might be investing in about some of these organizations. So, yeah, it's 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 not it's not entirely clear what what some of those differences are. But we do see levels of a professionalization that tend to go up when we get a state level of funding. States are not going. So one of the things we hear is that. Organizations, states, entities that are accountable for public funds are not going to invest in unstable organizations that don't have clear boards, clear leadership structures, clear ways that they staff their organizations. They're typically not going to invest because it's too risky. And they and they have to these organizations that have to file all sorts of paperwork with the government to Correct. show that they have been Correct. meeting the, the the regulations that they have to. Kenny, when you when you were working, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was just going to add that. The some organizations have said, and my view on it in some cases is, is that when government money comes down or is passed through to organizations, the organizations get in the mindset of that's someone that we need to serve to receive a reimbursement for. And what that leaves out is, is the outcomes associated with what outcomes are we looking for as a nonprofit organization for that client that we serve. Where with the government paying for uh, services rendered, it's more a matter of that person was served and how many did you serve based on the amount of money that right. we provided you with. So what, what I believe is some of the true outcomes aren't necessarily there in terms of what you hope to see happen in that person or does is that person's life changed because of the service that you provided where when the reimbursement comes through, it's just a matter of we serve this person and it's we a receive statistic. the money for it. Yeah, right. it's a classic outputs versus outcomes right there. Right. It's much easier for them to measure and build contracts around some of these outputs, but are you really achieving what the mission is for the outcomes that you want? So right. when you worked in Austin at Boys and Girls Club, did you get government money? There was a period of time that we did receive some money from the... Uh, Department of Education, mm -hmm. and that was in uh, to serve low-performing low schools. Right. And then the other that we received uh, was from uh, Governor Perry's administration at the time, was to serve uh, children that lived in a household where there was a uh, a child that uh, lived in a household where there was an incarcerated family member mm -hmm. or somebody on uh, probation or parole. So. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm reading into some of your body language on that, that it wasn't the greatest experience. No, it wasn't. It, it, it turned into just a matter of my staff. I think what trickles down is to your frontline staff that's providing the service as the executive, you put the crunch on them to serve a certain amount of kids, mm -hmm. and you can right. get away from your pure outcomes. Right. That's bad. Uh, so we tried to stay away from that and put in our own standards per our own organization that we had to make sure to adhere to. And quite honestly, sometimes we weren't able to bill for some of that money. So you get you kind of get caught in the trap of providing enough services to bill for the amount of money that was allocated to you. And once you get caught in that, that can throw off your mission and what you're doing internally. 
Well, that's what, I mean, one of the things that, that we found in this survey that I was involved in, as Will yeah. was as well, was that the primary relationship of local governments to uh, nonprofits in Texas, at least, uh, was that grant or contract relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least, I, I don't remember the percentage now, but 56 to 60 percent of uh, the local governments we surveyed indicated that, that was their relationship. Far fewer of them were actually, it seemed, working together jointly, if you will. Right. They, they seemed to either hire this out, like a, a hire a nonprofit to provide homeless service, right. for example, and it's, you know, we're, we're out of the picture. Right. But I mean, ultimately, going back to the community and the fact that you know, taxpayer dollars are going to support this, you know, I guess the way I kind of see it is ultimately local governments accountable. I mean, they're, they're the ones who are ultimately accountable to the public, at least. Um, and, and the challenge they face is finding nonprofit organizations um, that can provide these services effectively and, and, and do the kinds of things that, that government needs, these, needs done uh, with these clients. Yes, I mean, so building on maybe Anne's point about accountability, one piece of this that I think is, so it seems to me that there are some clear concerns with accountability when nonprofits are delivering services that kind of fit within the, the general, what we would consider local government to maybe do, or state government. But the other piece of this, right, is a political picture that, to I think Will's point earlier, some things that, some things um, government's just not going to be allowed to do because of what the voters want. And so, do you see, when thinking about nonprofits, I guess in this way, what's the, um, are, are nonprofits more common, for example, across states where we know there's not a lot of support for government doing things. You know, take Texas for example, where got the small government libertarian kind of mindset, and so you know maybe the citizens aren't don't want the state providing uh, some type of service, right? And let's say it has something to do with poverty and disadvantaged children or something. And um, but that's something that a nonprofit can fill in either with contracting from other resources. So is there is there a political picture here that like to Anne's point there is this accountability question which I think is troubling but also to I think Will's point like but government can't do it and so is having something that is you know unaccountable but actually providing some services better than no services is kind of the question I'm left with but is is this is this political in nature I mean is it in red states are there more nonprofits because there's more gaps in Funding, or are they more common in blue states because they're more progressive across some social causes? Or do we have any information on that? My, I, I don't, I, I can't cite for you with, with great deal of confidence. <laughs> um, government funding plays a huge role. So when we, as we've watched the the growth of the sector, right? If you go back to the 70s, when we think about devolution and, and all of what was going on with the states and with the governments in reference to pushing services out to the community level, that was a huge driver for the sector. Mm -hmm. There's just no doubt about it. So the government still play is still a pretty major funder for many of these organizations. So in a social services area, it's probably 50 to 60 percent of the revenue that's being paid for by, um, um, that's at, you know, sort of at an aggregate level, if we were to look at the sector. And, and while there is indeed some variation in reference to what's going on in Minnesota versus what's going on in Texas, to pick two sort of mid-country mid, mid uh, states and sort of look at one that tends to be a... Um, 
there's a, there's a surprising number of organizations, both in Texas um, and Minnesota, but that are reliant on government. So, so conservatives, just as much as red politicians and blue politicians, both look to the sector to, one, save them some money and to be able to do things that they are less inclined to be able to do. So there's this general belief that if we can get a nonprofit to do it, they, we can give them 50 cents on the dollar, as Kenny said, and they'll raise the other 50 cents on the dollar. And that's pretty much appealing to anybody. Mm-hmm. And so both that set that, that setup in reference to what nonprofits are expected to do to fill in the gaps that we're unwilling to plays itself out in, in, in multiple ways. So yeah, I mean, maybe the human services system in Massachusetts is a bit more robust or a bit more sophisticated than one that's happening in a state that's going to be substantively underfunded. But but some of those same ex- concerns are going to exhibit themselves at the state level and in some of the other places as well. So um, I don't know if I fully answered your no, that's, question. That's, uh... So everybody relies. I mean, in the United States, every government, Minnesota, California, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Texas. Correct. Georgia, they, all, they all rely on it. It's a function of how things go. Right. Yeah. right. So, I, you know, I don't know much about this, but anecdotally, when I talk to Europeans, it's not quite the same. They, they, they think that we're crazy, yeah. right? They think this is the stuff the state should do. Right. And you know, when we talk about thousand points of light, our our, our namesake George H. W. Bush, that might might have been one of his most famous quotes. Besides, right. "Read my lips, no new taxes." Right. right? right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and public service and, is a noble and calling. Public service that's is a the most calling. famous yeah. one. Yeah. That's, that's the most famous one at the Bush School. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but but Europeans you know, look at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Europeans look at us and say, "The state should be doing this." Right. What's the what's the normative answer to that? Is there or even not normative? Is is there is there evidence that private that 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 NGOs and 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 uh, and philanthropic organizations provide those services better? I don't think there's evidence that yeah. that's the case. But we are seeing you know, the Europeans probably have the most robust social service right. system and are indeed. I mean, the answer is, well, Russia, right? I mean, if you ask Russians, do they volunteer? They're like, well, I wait till the government tells me that I'm supposed to go do something yeah. and then I will go do it. Right. And I, if you want to call that volunteering, right. I guess if that makes you feel good. But otherwise, you know, there's a whole mindset that just sort of says government's supposed to take care of all this stuff for, you know, and certainly European countries, you see that as well. But increasingly, I mean, we're seeing the same shift that begins being because it's can be expensive, and people have to sort of set priorities about how are we going to allocate funds, um, and so the sectors continue to sort of exhibit and play themselves out. But yes, it's different in France than it is in Germany, um, but in the UK, you see quite a bit of, of a role of the nonprofit sector in the, in that country. Yeah, but as far as one being better than the other. I suppose government provides has the potential to provide a more comprehensive. So we think about public education, right? right. So public education achieves that objective of basically serving all kids in all places with some degree of consistency and some degree of everybody's getting a level of education that's comparable around wherever you are, Appalachia, you know, 
Minnesota or what have you. Clearly some schools are better than others, but that's a great example about where government is able to do that in a way that that doesn't happen and it couldn't happen with you were relying on private, private independent entities functioning in different ways. So it seemed from the, from the uh, earlier discussion that you guys don't include faith-based organizations when you, you talk about what you, what you focus on, right? Churches are private, but what non-profit. they do in, in nonprofit, uh, despite the fact that they pass the plate every day, every every week. But uh, do you guys see faith-based and yeah. church operations? Do you uh, are they different from other kinds of NGOs? And, and, and I've worked with uh, several faith-based organizations in the past, and not so much. I mean, they 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 tend to operate like nonprofit organizations and. In my case, they want to provide, uh, my experience has been, they want to provide services uh, to the congregants, or the congregants feel like they uh, have a desire to serve the community in which they uh, reside. And um, I've seen several operations that mirror basically what uh, most nonprofits look like. They figure out a funding structure, uh, someone to lead the organization, and someone that's primarily providing the uh, service delivery with the oversight of uh, boards. Is there any is there any work done on on kind of efficiency of of the the provision of services between faith based and non faith based organizations? Not, not not that I'm aware of. Yeah. I mean, I increasingly. I mean, you're right. I mean, I tend to we tend to think about social service organizations, right. arts organizations. I, I tend to think a little bit less about faith based organizations. But increasingly, we're having conversations. I was just talking with an individual who's in our in our in our online executive program. He's the pastor of a pretty big church up in Dallas, and he's like, "This stuff is great. I absolutely need this yeah. stuff to be able to help me run this church. Yeah. I'm, I've spiritually, I'm well trained. Managerially, I'm not. Yeah. It's not what I have, and I need it to be able to be an effective leader of this church. And we we find it so increasingly. And when I look across what's being done in other schools. Or other centers, there's a there's a quite a bit of denominational work that's being done. So one of our one of our uh, folks that's on our advisory board runs a center, and he's doing a tremendous amount of work with the Presbyterians, with the Lutherans, with the Jewish community because they all want some of that same training about how do they run those organizations. It's con- the context is different, and some of the different things, but many of the structures and many of the things that they're thinking about are very comparable, including and engaging. Well, let's, let's move. Let's shift a little bit to the private sector and this concept of social entrepreneurialism and some some phrases like that. Yeah. I, I'm remembering Lauren Bush Lauren when she came to the Bush School. Yeah. She brought her her, her bags. Her yeah, feed, her bags. Her feed bags. Bag. Her feed bags. Yeah. I carry my feed bag into the HEB every week. Nice. <laughs> and, and as I understand, what she is doing, she has an organ. She has a, a business. She has a for-profit business. She has a for-profit business, but she's she's taking a portion of those yeah. profits and then. Funding, or how is she, how is she actually, how does that structure that? Yeah, that yeah, I, I mean, so Paul Newman, right, says that's another yeah. one that we oh, might yeah. think about, that right, all pro, all profits go to charity, yeah. right? So, I mean, she's modeled, in some sense, her her organization on this, very similar, similar to what that is, right? And that you have a very good product, um, and in that case, the bag probably isn't inexpensive. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a nice it's, bag. It's a nice bag. It's a beautiful yeah. bag. It's well designed. And you feel it's, like you're yeah, yeah making, and you're making a difference. Good. So Tom Shoes yeah. is another example of yeah. these organizations that sort of have these 
dual bottom line, multiple purpose um, uh, kinds of ideas. And they and they 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 do the 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 philanthropic work or the social work in a in a, in a couple of different ways. Some of them um, in Lauren's organization, they have particular partnerships to invest. So one of the things that Tom's shoes got in trouble with, right, is you buy a shoe and a particular shoes goes to a particular village. Well, they they do it in a way that is you know international development in its worst form ever. Right. You go and you show up with a pallet of shoes <laughs> and you drive the cobbler out of yeah, business yeah, in the village, exactly. right? Because you say you throw the whole market elements in. So you try to do it in a way that's sensitive. So as best as I understand what Lauren is doing in her work, she's trying to be very sensitive to the context and how she partners. And it's and it's and that was part of what I was talking with her about is it's a lot of work. It's a whole other set of work that she has to do to manage not only designing, developing, and making beautiful bags and selling those bags and getting those bags out to the consumer, but then and now what do we do with the proceeds that we have? To not only invest into market and promote who we are, but to actually invest in a way that's responsible. And my understanding is she was working very hard at trying to be able to do that in a way that didn't cause damage in the investments that she was doing. Is that the wave of the future, or is that, or is that just a, a tiny little? I think it's. Piece of, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a prostitute. Yeah. Prognosticator of the future, but I think. Well, then, a, what good are you? That's, that's what's going to happen in the future. It's an element, right? I mean, and perhaps uh, we, you know, we ask the millennials amongst us: Is this is this the kind of organization that you're going to want to work for? Right, that is yeah. has a mission and purpose and is dual bottom line and and always has more of a, 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 a both a, a dual purpose to it. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting sub portion of who we are. Every but how organ, big, how every, big is it? Every, how, bi how big is that kind of that for work profit that, and, philanth and, and philanthropic? It's modest. It's modest. Modest, like below ten percent of the total. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a statistic, but I would right. guess that. Yes. I would think it's pretty small. Yeah. The uh, I think you've also seen some of that with the nonprofit executives having to have an entrepreneurial approach as to how they can earn income within their own agencies. So I've seen models where nonprofits have uh, 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 resale stores. Uh, we have a model in Austin where LifeWorks at one point opened up an ice cream shop and the only employees were uh, uh, clients that they serve. So they were also putting people to work. So I think, I think as nonprofit organizations evolve, I believe it to be a very small percentage. Right. Somewhere between maybe five and ten percent. Yeah, so you think about philanthropic investments, and how these organizations fund themselves, they're getting government money, they're getting private donations, and some modest piece of that is enterprise kinds of activities of some in some way. One of the things that I think would be interesting, and I won't ask you to prognosticate about the future, <laughs> but you know, we had this wave. Uh, so <laughs> That's yeah. all people ask about, you know. When, when, when I get called by reporters, it's like, well, what's going to happen next? And I, I don't know what's going to happen next. But they don't want to hear that. You've got to tell them something. I've got to make something up. All right. I think that's a isn't that a isn't that a theme of one of our exact series? Is uh, yeah. what's yeah. next? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to piece it together. So. One of the things that um, I think all the advances in technological tools, uh, as you all know, is something that's really interesting and that's really going to change some aspects of how services are delivered and who's delivering them. And so we had this wave of the new public management 
which this was uh, under starting under Gore and Clinton. It was this idea that we could essentially contract out a lot of things from government and do them more effectively and more efficiently and save uh, save money, right? And do the same job. Which turns out there's really mixed evidence for whether that was as useful. It really depends on a lot of contextual factors. But there's this new wave thinking about how you know the future of government is this digital era governance. And they're seeing evidence that a lot of these services are coming back under one umbrella because the ability to collect data and use data and provide services uh, in a networked way with more sophisticated data systems and artificial intelligence is going to bring a lot of these things that we've contracted out. It's going to make it easier for government to do even more effectively and efficiently. And there'll be large returns to scale on centralized data. And so it'll be really interesting. Again, I won't ask anyone to hypothesize yeah. about the future. Yes. But I think it will have some interesting consequences for maybe the scope and size of where these gaps are and uh, what that means for the nonprofit sector and what types of things they'll continue to uh, to provide because as we mentioned, you know, a lot of these nonprofits are under-resourced even compared to local and state governments. So their uptake on a lot of these tools is likely I think to be way lagged oh, even yeah. what even behind what government's going to be able to do. So I think that'll be interesting. Anything else? So we're hitting our, we're getting close to our 50-minute mark. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that, as uh, proponents or um, folks out <laughs> doing nonprofit work and helping kind of prepare those who are filling in the current government gaps of services and international uh, uh, non-governmental organizations? Is there anything we've missed? that would be useful to discuss. Well, I was curious about one, one thing, and that's the competition among nonprofits, right. which may be related to something, something that uh, we haven't talked about yet. But is there kind of a rivalry, or are you all folks just one big happy? I, I tend, to, I tend to think about it in two ways, okay. right? So I tend to think about nonprofits and their social services, yeah. and they do as best they can seek to coordinate and collaborate and think about alliances and how the homeless shelter works with the uh, with the with the early childhood care and etc. Right with the with the job training program, they really do try to coordinate that kind of work that they do. Not always. Sometimes somebody has a particular faith approach or a particular perspective that they think is so unique that they they need to do. Um, but by and large, they will try to coordinate. But in reference to resources, it's pretty it's pretty cut cut it's pretty cutthroat out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're fighting for funding um, from all sources, um, and people will not like to talk about it, but yes, I mean, I mean, you all have gotten solicitations, if you show any modest degree of interest in any, any oh, organization, man, everyone. everybody is there to, to, to also get, give you an if opportunity to be If it able weren't to... for them, the Postal Service would have closed yeah. down. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, that's how I tend to think about competition. I uh, I have one empirical piece on this that is maybe relevant and interesting. It doesn't look at specifically the ways in which the nonprofits compete, but we there is we were able to show through some research that there is a point at which you have too many nonprofits fighting over too few sources, and so there's this kind of curvilinear relationship that at some saturation level because we, they're comp competing over resources, the overall financial health 
of the average nonprofit starts to decline within a local area once you have too many of them. So, and we see, so we're doing some statistics to try and track what's going on in the state of Texas. And we see median income of your typical, so your middle of the road nonprofit or your typical nonprofit, which isn't a whole lot of meat revenue anyway. It's about 150,000, less than 200,000. That has gone down over time as the number of nonprofits have gone up. So we've got this huge uptick in the number of nonprofits, and by and large, organizations are, are, are less well off in the kind of revenue that they have over time. One of the things we promote or we've talked about with some of the agencies that we've worked with locally is to encourage them to try to figure out a way to work together. And a specific example of that is, uh, you know, donors are more sophisticated than ever these days. They want their money to go as far as it can if they make investments in organizations. But I've also seen it from the state level, literally, where I was pulled in once as a representative from Big Brothers Big Sisters. I remember Boys and Girls Clubs being around the table. I remember uh, Point uh Special Advocates being pulled around the table um, over to Senator Royce West's office. And he basically said, uh, and this is to your point, all of you all come to me individually for money. And there is so much more available if you can figure out a way to work together. So the administrative cost to distributing money, managing the funds that trickle into nonprofit organizations, that's why personally I try to encourage these organizations to find a way to work together if you have common missions. But what you get caught up in is everybody's so uh, passionate or particular to their own mission where that goes out the window once you leave the meeting, if you will. <laughs> If we could only overcome coordination problems, yeah. that would just solve so much of what we study. <laughs> We'd be able to close down the Bush School. Yeah, well, thank you um, to Ann and Greg for being here as always. Thanks to Will and Kenny for taking time out of your end of semester and uh, busy weeks to spend some time talking about what you do. This has been a great conversation. And, thanks uh, thanks thank to our friends at Uncork. Oh, yes, and thanks to our friends at Uncork. And this is probably the first time that we've had a lot of background noise. Yeah. I don't know if it's because it's close to Christmas or daylight savings time is also <laughs> gets dark sooner, but the, the bar filled up. Yeah, it's uh, a nice ambiance tonight. Um, so hopefully the audio quality is enhanced by the background noise, right. <laughs> not degraded. Um, thank you. Yes, it's thank a pleasure you, to be able Appreciate to be it. here. Thank you Thanks all. So much. We'll be back with you in about a month and hopefully right back at uh, downtown on court. Thanks for your time. <laughs>